morning, everybody. How are you doing out there? Good? Thanks for showing up on Thanksgiving weekend. It's usually uh, not that well attended. I know typically weekend, uh, this kind of weekend is people are inclined to sort of go visit family, you know, see them, fight with them, maybe reconcile with them, who knows. In recognition of that, I decided to do a standalone message covering uh, just a part of a topic that I have rarely ever heard taught at churches that I've attended. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we'll dig in and see where we go. God, thanks for this time we have together. Thanks for your word, which reveals all kinds of stuff to us, including things about the future. And so as we dig into this, uh, we pray that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that we would end up being even more thankful for you by the time it's over. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Um, I recently saw a report from a new research done by the Pew Research Center, uh, which, despite the use of the word Pew, is not a religious entity. It's a self-described nonpartisan fact tank that informs the public about the times, attitudes, and trends shaping the world. This new research really got my attention because it says that four in 10 Americans, that's 40%, believe that we are now living in the end times. 55% of all Americans say that we're actually in the last days and that Jesus is coming back to the earth one day. The majority of Americans say they don't know when Jesus is going to show up, but some believe that he will return in their lifetime. Now, as amazing as that is, what's really amazing about this research is this. It is not a poll of evangelical Christians. It's a poll of Americans, of all races, all religions, all political viewpoints, which begs the question, why? Why are so many people now more than ever before believing that I think we might be living in the last days? Well, just think back on the last few years, for example. We endured a global pandemic that killed millions, shut everything down, and isolated us from each other, right? Putin, who has looked for years to reconstitute the old Soviet Union, the Soviet bloc at least, he invades Ukraine after our president said that an incursion would be okay. Hundreds of thousands of both sides are now dead, wounded, including massive amounts of civilian casualties. Inflation globally is hurting people, and rising interest rates are pummeling younger generations of Americans who didn't get to experience the double-digit inflation during the Carter years. So they're not sure that this can be overcome, <laughs> like we older geezers. Uh, things look, maybe, and feel, maybe, like the wheels are coming off in this world and in this country, and is especially hitting the most vulnerable. Don't even get me started about the border crisis. Our vice president has actually said that younger generations are experiencing climate anxiety aided by some leaders, including AOC, who says that mankind probably only has about 12 years left to exist. Well, if you buy into all that, then why get married? If you buy into all that, why have kids? If you buy into all that, why work hard? If you buy into that, why work at all? Why not just hang out in your parents' basement? Why save up for a house? Why buy a house? It's all just going to go up in flames or floods or earthquakes or crime. So I'm thinking, maybe we can do a little bit better 
than some of the fear mongers out there by seeing what God might have to say about some things coming downstream. So what I want to do today, and all I want to do today, is just scratch the surface of this chapter in Luke 21. It's uh, really just a deep section of Scripture, but I'm going to predict the future today and tell you four things that are going to happen, four certainties about the future. First up, there will be an end. There will be an end. The world, the universe, as we know it, will cease to exist. Luke 21, verses 7 to 9. And they, the disciples, asked him, Jesus, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place but then the end will not be at once. So you'll hear of wars and tumults, right? Don't be terrified. Why? Well, because there's always been wars and tumults on earth. So don't be terrified because these things have to happen first, but the end will not be at once. The end is coming, but not immediately. It will come in God's perfect time, in other words. Let's check out verses 32 and 33. Jesus still talking. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And just so you know, the term this generation is not referring to people who are alive right then and there with Jesus. This generation includes everybody who lives from the time of Jesus' first arrival until things as we know them ends. One day, the universe as we know it will end, and we know this from a biblical perspective. And just to throw this out there, there are three passages in the Gospels, you might if you're taking notes, <clears throat> that Jesus is teaching the disciples as they're walking up to and on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse. These three little passages, one is in Matthew 24, which has the most detail. Luke 21 has a little less detail, and Mark 13 has even less. But each is from a different perspective, but it's all basically drawn from the same basic territory as Jesus is teaching on the uh, Mount of Olives. So Matthew 24, the parallel text to Luke 21, Jesus said this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there's Jesus saying, look, the end is going to come one day. Paul the Apostle knows that to be the truth when he gave us the uh, great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Here he said this, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So, say, Jesus says the end is coming. Paul the Apostle says the end is coming. Peter not only says the end is coming, but he kind of describes it in, first, in 2 Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in terms of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. <clears throat> so, basically, we know that the end is coming from Scripture. 
but we also actually know that from present scientific community, which regularly reminds us that we live in a limited universe. We didn't always believe this. Didn't believe this when I was growing up as a kid in the 50s and 60s. Science didn't always teach this. But now we've come to the understanding that the universe has a shelf life. Did you know that until the 1950s, really the 60s, the scientific community said that the universe was just eternal. It was going to go on and on and on and on and on forever. It was called the steady state theory. That was the prevailing cosmology of the day. Today, we know better, right? We've added to our knowledge base. And that addition to the knowledge base uh, just basically has science and scientists catching up with what God's word has said all along. And so there's different theories as to how the universe is going to end. But one thing pretty much everybody agrees on now, it's going to end. It's going to end. And the universe is running down. There are certain scientific realities that are undeniable and unbreakable. Laws, really, scientific laws. Who, um, gosh, who, who, who might have made those up? Yeah, God did when he created the universe. One of them is the now famous second law of thermodynamics, which basically says everything in the material universe is experiencing energy loss or heat death. It's like a clock that's wound up. It's now running down. Things wear out. They don't evolve. This is easily observable by a new car. Over time, does the car evolve? If you bought a, if you bought a, a, if you bought a Volkswagen, does it evolve into a, a Mercedes? No. No. It doesn't get shinier. It doesn't get more efficient. They rust. They break down. Human beings, over time, don't grow stronger as they get old. They grow weaker. We don't become less wrinklier over time. Second law of thermodynamics. I checked it out in the mirror this morning. Yeah, it's still at work, right? It's definitely at work. Scientists acknowledge that the sun has a limited shelf life because before the core runs out of hydrogen, leaving only helium, which is going to turn the sun into a brighter, hotter, red giant that pulls Earth closer and closer by its gravitational pull. So there's going to be an end. There'll be an end. That's one prediction. Second prediction, Jesus will be back. We see this declared in one sentence in Luke 21. And then, after all these things that Jesus talks about, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Son of Man is a messianic term. All the Jews of the day knew this. He was speaking about a reference from Daniel chapter 7, a vision of the Son of Man who was given a kingdom. The world will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, in Matthew 24, reminder, it's one of those three passages, uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, right? Uh, the disciples are walking up to Jesus with the Mount of Olives, and they ask him the question. They said, now, not only when will, these, will these things be, but what will the sign of your coming be? Of the end of the age, what's going to be like? And Matthew 24, Luke 21, is the answer to those questions. What will be the sign of your coming? Now, it's kind of an odd question if you think about it. I mean, Jesus is standing right there with them, right? And they're asking him, when is he going to, when is he going to come? <laughs> He's already there. And they say so. When are you coming? You, you might think Jesus is going to say, oh, don't you guys notice that I'm actually right here with you? Now, when they asked that question, they were not thinking of his second coming at all, of his coming back. That, that was not in their minds. 
there of a sense of future things, did not imagine Jesus Christ dying, returning to the Father, and then at some appropriate point in the future, returning again to the earth. No, the Messiah is right here with us, they thought. And at some point, while he's here with us, he's going to erupt and establish this kingdom and rule over the enemies of Israel. And we're going to have a good time when that happens. But then a few days later, Jesus takes them to the upper room for Passover. And he unloads the truth on them that he's actually mentioned several times before that hasn't actually computed, right? He's going to die. He's going to come back from the dead. Then he's going to return home to the Father. Now, when they heard that, I'm convinced. It was almost like this. Does not compute, does not compute. It It made no sense to them. They did not get it at all. But in that conversation, Jesus could tell that they were really bothered by this. So he says this to them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So he says two things here. I'm going, and I'm coming again. I'm going and I'm coming back. Since Jesus spoke that promise, that's been the hope of the church for the last 2,000 years. That's why Paul in Titus 2 referred to it as looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why so many of the hymns of the historic church um, have been about the second coming of Christ. We often sing some of them at Christmas time because we think they're Christmas songs but they're really not. They're second coming songs. One is the Isaac Watts anthem, Joy to the World. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. It's about the second coming, the return of Christ. Julie Ward Howe wrote Battle Hymn of the Republic after the Civil War. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's about a second coming. How about this line from a song we'll put up on the screen? With the glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. When does that happen? When he comes back. This is also one of the dominant themes of Scripture. The second coming of Jesus Christ sort of dominates Scripture. Next to the subject of faith, the coming of Christ in the future is the most discussed topic in this book. You know how many times it's discussed? 1,845 times. The second coming is alluded to or predicted. One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament mention it. So, out of 260 chapters in the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, there are in the New Testament 318 specific times the second coming is spoken of. Every mention of the first coming of Christ is, uh, is, is, is great. I mean, it's awesome. It's a great thing to happen, right? But for every mention of the first coming of Christ, the second coming is mentioned eight times. So the first coming is really important. Pretty important, Jesus coming to earth, dying on a cross, rescuing mankind, making salvation available to a lost world. We celebrate the first coming every Sunday here with communion, right? Pretty important. However, second coming is mentioned eight times more often. So we know two things that we can predict. There's going to be an end to the world, and Jesus is coming back. Here's the third prediction. There's going to be signs. There's going to be signs. 
Notice the question in verse 7. They ask him, teacher, when will these things be? What will the sign be when these things are about to take place? And he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Speaking of signs, let's just skip on down to verses 25 to 28 as Jesus continues. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So signs, signs all over the place. The Greek word means markers or indicators or signals. God's a God who provides signs. He gives indicators when he's about to do something, just like you have uh, road signs that warn you about what's coming on further down the road. God makes this clear in Amos chapter 3. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So when God is going to act in some way, he warns the people. He warns his people. He sends a sign or signs so that his people will know what he's about to do and when, right? Something's going to happen, right? Remember when the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, we, 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 we want a sign from heaven. And Jesus responded to them in his most loving tone, you hypocrites, You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. So what is he talking about there? Yeah, he's talking about how they missed totally, even though scripture has unveiled it, his first coming as the Messiah, the Messiah that came to Israel. They should have seen the signs. They should have read the signs. You know, there were signs of his first coming. You know how many signs there were? Over 300 in the Old Testament. Now, if you're driving down the road, and you see 300 signs warning you about something that's ahead, you really shouldn't be surprised when the sign that what the signs are predicting actually shows up. You see a sign that tells you, you know, you ought to slow down to 45 miles an hour because there's a pretty dangerous curve up ahead. But you ignore the sign, the 300 signs that say that. You keep going 70 miles an hour, you're going to probably end up flying off the road into a gorge and die, Right? Well, God gave people many signs in the Old Testament that lays out Jesus' profile, including that the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah, he will be born in Bethlehem, he'll be from the lineage of King David. The book of Daniel, fascinating, actually predicts the exact week when this Messiah will actually present himself in Jerusalem, which Jesus did, riding in the town on that donkey on Passover week. So I know that the last days... Technically started like 2,000 years ago. If you look at all of world history, <coughs> the last days is really from the time of Christ's first coming <clears throat> until the time of his second coming. But I think there's some indication that we could be, you know, approaching the last days, final days of the time period. There are signs that prophets gave, signs that Paul gave, signs that Jesus gave in Luke 21, Matthew 24, as well as other places, right? Now, something else. This sort of nuts and bolts a little bit here. The signs that are mentioned in those three New Testament chapters, 
Matthew 21, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. The signs that Jesus gives will take place primarily in a future time period called, in the Old Testament, the 70th week of Daniel. You've got to know Daniel chapter 9 to know this. But the 70th week of Daniel is really a seven-year period that the New Testament refers to as the tribulation period. More specifically, it's really going to be the last three and a half years where things get super nasty. Um, and that's called the Great Tribulation. So those are the signs that he's really talking about. We're not in that time period right now. But it sure seems like maybe we're edging a little closer to the edge of it. Now, something else that's going to be helpful. In Matthew 24, when Jesus gives the signs, there's going to be this, and there's going to be that, and there's going to be this other thing over here. Watch for this and that. And he says this. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Okay. Fortunately, Jesus uses an analogy that we can understand, a comparison. We know something about birth pains. Men, not so much. Women, a whole lot more. Uh, I've observed them, right, as my wife gave birth to three kids. But birth pains, they don't happen at the beginning of pregnancy, right? Am I wrong in women? Can anybody correct me? They don't happen at the beginning of the pregnancy, right? They don't happen in the middle of the pregnancy. They happen right before the birth, hence the term birth pains, labor pains. So there's contractions that occur, but you know that they're important enough to go to the doctor or the hospital or the birthing clinic or the midwife when those birth pains get more frequent and get more and more intense. You can time them, they're regular, and so you can, and you know that they're intensifying, they're getting closer together. So Jesus gave signs, but he said they're like the birth pains of a woman in labor. You know that the baby is going to be born because the pains get more frequent, more intense. So these are the signs that are going to come, that Jesus says. And they're going to get your attention because they're going to get more frequent and more painful. See what Jesus says here. Now, when these things begin to take place, he's talking to Christians, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So let's consider some things that are maybe beginning to happen. What can we look at, at things in our modern world that could be an indication that some things could be moving towards the end times that 40% of Americans think we're in? Well, thing one, Israel is back in its land. That's the most obvious one, right? Israel's back in its land. That happened in the 14th of May, 1948. Pretty significant, prophetically speaking, I would consider it a mega sign. Israel's back in its land. Why would that be important? Well, here's why. The context of all these chapters, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, the context of those chapters is exclusively Jewish. It's not Baptist. It's not Presbyterian. It's not American. It's, not, it's Jewish. Jesus is talking about Judea. That is a specific geographic area in Israel talks about Jerusalem, which is a specific city in Judea, in Israel. He says the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as he speaks about the Sabbath day, they pray, they pray that your flight might not be on the Sabbath. So the context, very, very, very Jewish. Because of all that, it necessitates that Israel has to be back in its land. So the events he speaks about could have made sense if it happened when Jesus was speaking it originally, because they were still in the land. But that ended in A.D. 70. When the Jews revolted, the Romans came in, destroyed the city, the temple, everything else, and dispersed the Jews worldwide. 
So after 70 AD, they weren't in their land anymore. And they were dispersed until, after World War II, the UN decided we need to give these folks, they got exterminated almost, some, some land. And so they gave, they gave Israel the land back 14 May 1948. Since then, it's been back. So you have, in, you have Jewish inhabitants now living in Jerusalem, in Judea, who are back commemorating those Sabbath days. So thing number two. There's a weird little coalition of nations forming. There's a coalition of nations forming right now that has prophetic implications. Speaking about three nations in particular, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Russia, Iran, Turkey. Let me just bring you up to speed. You probably already know this if you look to the news at any degree, right? But in recent year, Vladimir Putin has made no bones about the fact he wants to reconstitute the Soviet bloc. <clears throat> he sort of snuck back into Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, not the state of Georgia, in 2008. He annexed Crimea in 2015. And of course, we know in March 22, uh, he invaded Ukraine, all according to his grand plan. But did you know that he also has an interest in the Middle East? You may not know this, but they've got, uh, Russia has a permanent naval base in Syria. The northern port, port of city of Tardis is a major Russian naval base. Uh, the Russians are helping Iran build their second nuclear facility. Today, at, last, at present, uh, the intelligence community believes there are probably at least 1,000 Russian nuclear scientists actually working in Iran. So they've got this interesting relationship that we've never really seen historically. You know, a communist nation atheist nation by and large, you know, saddling up to a Shiite Islamic Republic. Hmm. And if you keep looking at the news, you know that Iran is now providing Russian, uh, Russia drones and additional weapons to help them against Ukraine. So Russia and Iran are just kind of interesting things to watch. But there's a third player, Turkey. Turkey's president, Erdogan, at one time kind of posed as a Muslim moderate. Today, he's moving quite to the extreme. We've got missionaries that have worked in uh, as missionaries in Turkey for uh, 25 years. They've just been kicked out, right? Visas were not, were not, were not reinstalled. So in 2017, Turkey actually signed a, an agreement with Russia for a $2.5 billion state-of-the-art anti-ballistic defense system. I saw a report in mid-September that Turkey is also considering ending its efforts to join the European Union, saddling a little closer to Russia, right? right? So you have this interesting configuration of Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Why would that be important? Well, the Bible predicts that in the end of days, there will be a major battle fought against Israel by a group of nations who form this coalition. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, if you're taking notes, you can write that down and read those, read those passages. They, <coughs> they just, those chapters describe these nations and name them. One group is Gog, Magog, Rosh, and Meshach, which historians will tell you, oh, that's, that's where Russia is today, present day. They'll make a coalition with ancient Persia, which is today's modern-day Iran, and they also make a coalition with the nation of Gomer, which is where modern-day Turkey is. Russia, Iran, Turkey. It says in the text they'll form a coalition, and they will come against Israel, in the last days. That coalition, maybe it's forming, maybe it's going to attack Israel, who knows. Thing three, there's going to be specific conditions that are going to have to exist in the Middle East. Now, we've mentioned that Israel will be back in their land, right? Check. They're there. 
But other conditions the Bible talks about are going to exist. It says Israel is going to be massively prosperous in the land. Ezekiel 36, God says, I will multiply you. I will do better for you than at your beginning. So the whole chapter talks about Israel's prosperity. And if you know anything about the GDP of Israel today, it is one of the strongest nations going. The Middle East region is also, surprise, surprise, to be peaceful. Ezekiel 38 describes Israel right before this coalition is formed against it as a peaceful people dwelling security, securely and in safety. I don't know if you looked at the Middle East in the last hundred years. It is not a peaceful place. It's a rough neighborhood. You've got like 411 million neighbors who seem to want nothing more than the total elimination of the state of Israel. And yet, Israel exists. Now, do we see signs that peace might be breaking out? Well, you wouldn't know that from October 7th, would you? Yet, on the September 15, 2020, on the south lawn of the White House, the Abraham Accords were signed. The media sort of just whitewashed it, overlooked it, but I think it's one of the most historic events uh, ever to have happened, that Israel and any Arab nation would sign a peace treaty. That day, foreign ministers of the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain signed a peace accord with Israel. Since then, two other Arab nations have followed, Morocco and Sudan. Kosovo, although not an Arab nation, is exclusively pretty much Muslim, also signed on. And in December of 2022, Netanyahu, sworn in for his sixth term as the prime minister of Israel, stated that his intention was to make peace with Saudi Arabia. That sounds absolutely crazy, doesn't it? I mean, after all, all of the 9-11 terrorists came from Saudi Arabia. What does Saudi Arabia have to do with that? It seems crazy. But here we are, with talks going on up up to 7 October, to expand that peace negotiation thing with the Saudi Arabians, right? Now, why would Saudi Arabia want to do this? Why? Because they hate and fear Iran, especially Iran with a nuclear capability that's buddying up to China and Russia. So that's pushing them to develop allies. So after this whole thing with Hamas is over, if the Saudis end up signing a peace treaty with Israel, the door is going to be open for other Arab states to do the same thing. We'll see if, it, see if it goes that way. Thing number four, the world is, I think, increasingly conditioned to accept government control. Right? Look at verse 11. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. Well, there have always been earthquakes, right? But however, the one that hit Turkey and Syria in February killed over 60,000 people the deadliest in Turkey since the one that struck in 526 A.D. Cyclone Daniel in September was the strongest storm in history to hit Libya, causing 20,000 deaths. Famines and pestilences, look at the word pestilences. What was COVID? Would that qualify as a pestilence? Webster's definition describes pestilence as this, a contagion or infectious epidemic that is virulent and devastating. I'd say maybe it qualifies as a pestilence. Now, primarily, again, I want to be responsible here. These are signs that typically deal specifically with the tribulation period. But COVID sure seems to be kind of a biblical proportion. 
it just felt a little bit apocalyptic, right? It was worldwide, affected nearly everybody on Earth. It provided universal government overreach in almost every nation, where some groups were called essential and others were not. Some groups, like churches, even in America, were called non-essential. We could not meet here. Government could now say that, and you and I had to comply with it. And before things sort of slowly returned to normal, you couldn't go to a restaurant and eat, you couldn't go to a grocery store, have food without a mask. An Israeli historian, Yuval Harari, who currently teaches at Hebrew University, said this, looking at kind of what happened during COVID. COVID is what convinced people to accept and to legitimize total biometric surveillance. People will look back in 100 years and identify the coronavirus epidemic as the moment when a new regime of surveillance took over, especially surveillance under the skin, which I think is maybe the most important development of the 21st century in the ability to hack human beings. <clears throat> you know, for the last couple thousand years, it just didn't seem possible that the whole world would one day be forced to take a mark. But today, it makes a lot more sense. I know this doesn't perfectly qualify as a prophetic sign, but it sure could be a precursor to it. I think we have a better understanding now of how the events of the tribulation are going to be able to happen, because you can motivate entire populations with one emotion, fear. Get people afraid, and you can get them to do anything. You can move them in any direction, and the world is being conditioned for government control. So there's going to be an end. Jesus is coming back, and there'll be signs to light the way for what's coming. But I want to deal with this last and fourth prediction. You and I as Christians are going to be spared. We're going to be spared the tribulation period. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have tribulation. It doesn't mean that things aren't going to get tough for us. It doesn't mean we're going to be immune from hard things happening in the world. Jesus actually promised us that we would experience some of that. But the great tribulation is a far different thing. We will be spared, rescued before that happens. Jesus states that the Great Tribulation will be the worst time ever on planet Earth. You can read Revelation chapters 4 to 19 to get the gory details. And let me tell you, as a Christian, it'd be really grand to miss, <laughs> to miss that part of history. In verse 28 again, let's close with this. When these things begin to happen, here's what you're to do. Look up, lift your head, because your redemption draws near. Go down to Luke 21, 36, Jesus speaking. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have enough strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So these things are coming, but pray that you can escape these things. Well, if Jesus tells you to pray for something, it, the possibility exists that it's going, to, that it's going to be answered, right? Now, you and I live in the church age. This is the age of grace. Currently, God is doing work all over the globe in getting his church together, preaching the gospel. But the church age is going to eventually come to an end. It's going to come to an end suddenly, Jesus said. The Bible says it's coming like a thief in the night. Listen, thieves do not typically send you a signal, text. Hey, we're getting ready to, we're getting ready to rob you. We're going to, break, we're going to break into your back door, front door, side window, whatever. No, they don't do that, unless you're really dumb thieves. They just show up suddenly and unexpectedly. We refer to this rescue that Jesus is talking about here as the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is going to take place before the tribulation period starts. Jesus doesn't actually set foot 
on planet Earth for the rapture. Uh, let's just let Apostle, the Apostle Paul do the talking. This is from 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's a, here's a situation in Thessalonica. <coughs> Jesus, they all knew that Jesus, as Christians, were gonna, was, was going to come back. But what happened in Thessalonica was that some of the people began to die, either maybe from disease or old age or persecution. And the people that were left thinking, okay, well, it's, it's hopeless for them. They're, they've already died. If Jesus comes back, he's, he's not going to find them, our relatives. They're, they're in the ground. They're dead. And so Paul does a little bit of a, you know, teaching here about kind of what this trip, rapture is going to look like. So he's kind of calming the nerves of these people who are all worried about the fact that they've got some relatives who've already passed. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So he's hearing this directly from God, that we who are alive, who are still walking the planet until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So all the people throughout history who have believed in, put their faith in the Messiah, Old Testament, New Testament, up there, everything, everything since, you know, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, like walking the planet still, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will, listen to this word, always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Jesus gathers the church, all Christians throughout all time in the air, Christians who will have died and get resurrected, Christians who are still alive on the planet will be changed in some way in an instant, and all of them will be gathered together with Christ in the air and off they head to heaven. If, listen, if you think bad things are happening in the world right now, Imagine what it's going to be like when every Christian influence departs the scene. Right? People will still come to Jesus during the tribulation, including a Jewish revival where 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, will become Jesus' followers. But Satan's going to have a party. Persecution of Christians is going to be ugly. Now, when Jesus appears for the rapture, he doesn't, as I said, set foot on earth. He reserves that for his second coming, which is at the end of the Great Tribulation. And when he comes then, he's going to arrive from heaven with his church. We know that because he's told us we will always be with the Lord. So where he goes, we go. Yeah, we get to experience that millennial kingdom. First thing he does is obliterate the rebellion taking place in the Middle East, lock Satan and his minions into an abyss for a thousand years, no more influence of Satan on the earth for a thousand years. Pretty sounds like a pretty good place, don't you think? Second thing he'll do is establish a millennial kingdom, reign over the nations. So those are the four certainties headed our way. Crazy things, look, crazy things are going to be afoot. But God's got us, so we can be encouraged. I've just hit four highlights. Let me pray for us. Let's take some communion together because I think, maybe, maybe, maybe you're not, but I, I'm hoping that this message actually makes you a little bit thankful on Thanksgiving weekend. God, thank you for this time we've spent looking around at stuff that might be happening down the road, um, that you've got us, that you're in control, that, that, that this is nothing happening 
that's beyond your control, that's beyond your vision, that's a surprise to you at all. You've laid everything out for us. I now understand more deeply than I ever did as a younger Christian why there is a blessing promised for anyone who reads the book of Revelation because it tells us who's in charge, where things are going, and how we're going to be dealt with, and how awesome this is going to end for us. And therefore, we need to be sharing the gospel with everybody around us like crazy people, because it's all going to end. So help us to love the people around us. Help us to love each other in the church. And help us to deepen our love for you, to walk in ways that are glorifying to you and glorifying to your name as we maneuver ourselves in this world. As we take communion, teach us, meet with us, encourage us. And you know, we know you love us. Help us to know that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.